Well, folks, welcome to this week's episode of The Boundless Show. This is Lisa Anderson with you, and here's a little preview of what is coming up. For our inbox, we have a girl who's wondering if it's okay to be a bridesmaid in a friend's wedding, even though she sees some red flags in her friend's relationship. I'm going to go ahead and weigh in on that tricky situation. And then for our culture segment, Counselor Deborah Folleda joins us again for part two of our conversation with her about replacing bad habits with good ones. Such an appropriate topic now that we're in a new year. So uh, this time around, she's going to address dealing with emotions uh, that we face and really what you learn from your emotions. So you don't want to miss that. Okay, here we are for our roundtable. And this is going to be a fun conversation with my friends, Kristen, John, and Brittany. Hey, guys. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having us. On the topic of when you move to a new area. So who has not, I mean, I guess there are some people that just still live where they grew up. I mean, I think that does happen. But I think more and more now because of jobs, because of school, because of whatever, we're having to move around. And of course, in uh, today's day and age, it's much easier to pick up and move. And so um, we're going to have this conversation because there are definite pluses to it. And then there are some challenges as well. So I want, uh, first of all, let's all kind of give a rundown of the moves that we've made. Were they all kind of in the same vein? Have you had multiple moves? I mean, whether as a single person or with your family or whatever, what, (laughs) okay, Kristen, we're going to wait on you because you're counting on your fingers. She's still going through her list. So Brittany, how about we start with you? So my family and I moved different houses a decent amount, but in the same town. So oh, wow. okay. nothing huge there. And then I moved from California to Texas for college. Mm-hmm. And then from Texas to Colorado. And that is all now. Yeah, for work. Okay. All right. So a couple move. I mean, a couple of those are big. Even the college one going, quote unquote, away to college right, is a big right. move. That's about I did the same thing. That's a big life change. Mm-hmm. OK, John, how about you? From the time that I was two years old until college, we lived in the same house. Oh, my goodness. Why are you even on this roundtable? <laughs> well, okay, I, <laughs> I did make one big move across country okay. in 2018 from South Carolina to Colorado Springs. And what's really funny is before that time, I had been across the Mississippi River one time to go west of it. This is not an exaggeration. Literally, we went across the Mississippi River while we were on vacation as a family and came back. It was just too much for you? You couldn't handle that it? That was as far west as I had Too ever unfamiliar? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that, exactly. So okay. we just, we did it to say we had been across the Mississippi River and that was it. But before then, I had never even been to Texas, Oklahoma, or any of those states before I moved out west. So okay. I've made one oh. big move in my life so far. Okay. And it was it in a covered wagon or what you just you were able to make it with? I mean, I feel like you're just talking pioneer language here. No, but it actually, what's really funny, I had a um, 1998 Mazda Protégé at the time. We literally loaded up the Protégé nice. with all kinds of boxes and stuff in the back seat and in the trunk and me and my dad moved. That's great. That's awesome. All right, Kristen, you were counting. So what's your tally here? I think it's five. Okay. Um, and they've all been pretty significant. It was overseas to Oklahoma, to Alaska, to Oklahoma, to Kentucky, to Colorado. Hmm. So they've all been pretty big. That's good. I would say for me, I mean, more moves than I can count, but definitely some big ones. Um, and I've even lived overseas a little bit too. But um, my 
what I often like to say, especially for young adults, hopefully this is encouraging, is that this last time that I moved to Colorado for the job I now have is the only time in my life I moved with a job. So from the time I graduated college, which I actually went to my college from California to Chicago, sight unseen. I never even did a college visit. I just went there because I kind of pulled the trigger on this school at the last minute after making a decision. And then I just floundered in my 20s and was like, you know what? This state sounds like a good place to live. I'm just going to pack up my car, go out there, temp or find jobs or do whatever and yeah, it was dicey. It was very stressful, but I had a lot of life experience in that. So definitely a lot of experience with moves for sure. So, okay. So let's talk about what were some of the, what leading up to a move, like think of one of your bigger moves in your head. What were some of the fears that you had around moving? Like what were you leaving behind that was, you know, the security of that? And what were you striking out? What were you sensing was going to be different for you? I... I'm a people person. So I always was around friends in college. I lived with a lot of people in college. And I'm always on the phone talking to family from home, friends from other places. And so when I moved out to Colorado, I only knew my now fiance, who I didn't see very much because he was still in school. Hmm. And I was living alone. And I wanted to do that to challenge myself. I knew I'd be really bad at it Mm -hmm. because I couldn't sit in silence with myself for more than five minutes without going crazy. And so it was very nerve wracking to Mm -hmm. take the leap going from knowing everyone and having plans every second of every day to a new place, new job with no one living alone. Yeah, that's a big, big change. Mine was definitely leaving my friend group from college because I had so many wonderful friends that I went to school with. I was even friends with a few of my professors and stayed in touch with them pretty regularly after the first year after I graduated. And when I came out here, I had one family member who lived an hour away. That was it. Mm -hmm. So it really was one of my bosses described it as it's almost like you have been a plant and you've grown down roots inside the pot and now you've been moved to another pot completely it literally was being uprooted from one place to another Mm -hmm. so I had to really just kind of overcome the fear of the unknown socially who was I going to be friends with who where was I going to go to church who were going to be my closest friends because it was a clean slate completely Mm -hmm. I will say this because both of you mentioned the whole college scene. I remember for me, like being in school and graduating, I actually moved home to where my parents were and was so just disenfranchised with that, like because everything had changed since I'd been in school. And so I'm like, I'm going to move back to Chicago because I want to recapture what I had in college. Well, I assumed that it would be just like it was in college, but I go back and it's like, oh, no. People had moved away. People were doing, looking for jobs. People, it was not like you can never replace kind of that Mm -hmm. feeling that you had. You know, it's it's a hard thing to do. And so that was a rude awakening for me being like, oh, that's right. We're not in college. We all just have to like work these jobs. And (laughs) it was, was, I said, we're not going to meet up in the dining hall and just like go out for donuts or something afterwards. So anyway, but how about you, Kristen? Um, I think one of the hardest things for me, both when I moved out to Kentucky for school and out here for the job, um, was just how am I going to find a church? The strategy is very different. I went to a very small 
I went to a good school in Kentucky, but in a very small town. So there were five churches. So it's very easy to visit all five and then decide from those. And then I moved out here and I was like, there are 200 churches in denominations I would consider attending. (laughs) Okay, different strategy. So I think in both places, it was just the, how am I going to find a church? I talk about the church every time I'm on a podcast. Sorry, (laughs) but it's really important. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, just finding a church because I knew that if I had that, then my community would automatically extend from that to some degree. Mm -hmm. So So how long would you guys say the settling in process took place? I mean, because it, you know, for some, it's very, you know, easy and they start getting plugged in or they start meeting people and other people, there's a lot of like loss in that. And it's a lot harder to get moving and get going. For me, it was definitely nine months to a year. Hmm. I remember the first time I came back from a Christmas, or actually it was a New Year's vacation, and this was during my first year living here. When I finally landed back in Colorado Springs, I had a friend pick me up from the airport, and I still remember where I was. I had this thought that really for the first time, this now feels like home. Hmm. Before that, I had battled so much homesickness. I mean, it was... I was so thankful and to live in a new area and so thankful to live in kind of a uh, state I'd never been to and get this fresh start. But it took a little while mm-hmm. to finally feel like, OK, this is probably home for me. And mm-hmm. I'm very thankful I didn't bolt within those first six months because mm-hmm. it does take a little while. Yeah. Well, and now that you have the uh, John has the goal of hiking all these 14,000 foot mountains in Colorado, (laughs) which they don't have out east. So it pulls you back every time because you got to check off uh, that list. So that's good. For me, homesickness has never really been an issue. I my dad was a military man. And so I feel like I moved quite a lot for most people. And I was used to people leaving. And so I feel like homesickness is never something I've struggled with. It's more been who am I going to hang out with? And I think the transition, I don't know that I could put a pin on it, but it's probably about nine months to a year as well for me for a place to feel like home because it's, am I getting invited to this because this person truly wants to be my friend or am I getting invited to this because they also don't have friends? (laughs) So I think once I feel like friendships are established and they're actually reaching out to me because they love me and because they want to spend time with me, that's typically when it starts to feel like home is when the people become home. Mm Mm-hmm. I feel like it's kind of the opposite of a honeymoon phase in a relationship because most people say that's around nine months <laughs> and then you, you know, get out of the lovey-dovey phase a little bit, like you actually see flaws in the other person. But I feel like when you're moving to a new place, it's usually harder. And so I know when I first moved to Colorado, I was trying to get out of here a few times. But then between like, yeah, the nine month to a year period, then I was like, oh, I actually have friends and I actually feel like I know what I'm doing in my job. And things started to click more and I have a church community and things started to fall into place. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's good. I had I know one of my moves was to Washington, D.C., and that was probably the biggest culture shock move for me mm-hmm. other than actually living internationally, which I did during college and stuff. But, man, it was weird because I grew up in California and Washington, D.C. is not California. And to be in all. like the nation's <laughs> capital and I actually lived on Capitol Hill and mm-hmm. just the complete it was like living in Europe, like a totally different culture, people walking everywhere. I'd never been somewhere where there was a, you know, a, effectively a subway kind of system and all that. Um, and it was just really like a whole different 
scene as far as how things played out. And so it took a long time for me to settle in. And really, to Kristen's point, it was finding a church that finally got me connections of like people that could introduce me to this and handhold me to this and teach me this and all that, that ended up being really, really helpful on that front. So to that point, what would you guys say? Let's give some bits of advice for just steps to take to plug in when you move somewhere new. Because I think a lot of people, it's easy to just throw up your hands and be like, no one likes me. No one's inviting me to anything. I don't know what to do. I mean, everything from just practical things about navigating a new area to meeting people to what would you say works for you most in that regard? I think finding a Bible study or small group, whether it's through a church or not, um, that you can get plugged into because you'll meet people that way. But then also if you have a hobby or you have a goal, like John wants to hike all the 14ers, well then find a group on Facebook and go hiking with people and make friends that way. I think if you really focus on the church and the spiritual community and then community around your hobby, then that's going to be really helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would totally agree with Kristen's point because in all honesty, you have to face the reality that it is going to take time and you have to get outside your comfort zone for those first few months. Give yourself a lot of grace knowing, hey, it's not going to happen overnight. You have to be intentional that um, if you're going to make friends, you get out and meet people, go mm-hmm. to events, go online and find out what are some of the most um coolest attractions in the area mm-hmm. find out and then go and look them up and go visit them i mean just step out and try it is mm-hmm. the big thing because you don't know that you're gonna like living in an area until you actually get out and live in the area you can't just stay hunkered down in your apartment or basement the entire time and wish for things to come to you you have to get out and try yeah mm-hmm. it's interesting you say that because i think now because i work for a christian organization I meet so many people at work, but when I've worked other places like a pharmaceutical company or when I was on Capitol Hill at a newspaper there, I mean, it was like, you know, you're hoping to become friends with people. And I did. But a lot of times their social stuff is like, we're going to this bar or we're going to, I mean, I've literally been invited to strip clubs. I've been, you know, and so you got to realize that you're not always going to maybe make that good friend group out of, out of that. So you have to branch out and really going after um, a good church and a good small group is so important. I am in the wedding planning, marriage planning phase. And something that I've talked a lot about recently is creating a mission statement. So we began forming a mission statement for our marriage. So I was able to focus in on what do we want to do when we move to a new place? What's the goal? And it kind of came down to spreading God's love to others and showing people what a godly marriage is. And so I've kind of used that in my individual life as well. And I think that's really helped me adjust to living here too, because even if it's hard, I know that I still have a mission and a goal that I'm working towards. 
that I can constantly be working on every day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's good. I think, too, being willing to give yourself time to get to know a new area. I think a lot of people move somewhere and they're just upset that, oh, I don't know enough people or I don't know how to get around here. I mean, be okay with being a tourist in your own city. Mm -hmm. I think it's sometimes fun. Like, I remember settling into places and kind of figuring out, like, okay, well, what do I want to be my coffee shop where I kind of go and I kind of start meeting people? And I get to know the clerks and I do, you know, that kind of thing. And and just finding out what are the places to hang out. I remember, you know, a couple of times when I moved and was alone, just deciding, OK, it's a rainy day. I'm going to go to a movie and just go by myself and being OK with that, because mm-hmm. it's not like, you know, people are rejecting me. It's that I literally don't know anyone. So, <laughs> like, you know, you can feel OK about that. Like, <laughs> OK, it's just me in the theater here. So um, I think that can be helpful as well. So mm-hmm. Now, what would you guys say as far as making a move? How do you stay connected with people elsewhere so that you still feel like you have folks from other walks of life and other, you know, a little more longevity in your life to stay up with them? It is admittedly a two-way street. You have to be intentional also in that area in regards to staying in touch with certain friends. But I've had friends who've kind of come and gone since I have moved out here. But there are some, now that I've lived here almost five years, who I'm still in touch with on a regular basis. And they're very good about following up. Something like doing a Skype call or a Zoom call on the weekend is fantastic. My dad and I, many times, because I work a desk job, so most of the day I'm not talking to people. He will call me in the evenings when my shift ends and we'll talk and talk and talk. We've got a lot going on in our family right now, extended family. And so he's just kind of giving me updates on how things are going with my grandparents and things like that. So it really, it is a two-way street, but if you're intentional about reaching out, it's awesome to see how God will provide. And you can just continually stay in touch with people who are back home. My job is a phone job. My job is to communicate with donors. And so I have a really hard time going home and getting on a call with someone I haven't talked to in six months because I'm like, this is going to be exactly like my whole work day and I need to rest. And so I feel like for me, keeping in touch has been a little bit harder. Um, but because I have left friends in every life stage um, and I've still been able to maintain friendships, I know that there's a lot of grace. I don't have to talk to one of my best friends every week or every day for us to still be really close friends and for us to still love one another really deeply and treasure one another. And so I think giving myself grace, but I do want to be more intentional. There's a lot of girls that um, I've poured into. I love middle school students. I'm a very much an outlier in that, but um, <laughs> there's a lot of girls that I've poured into and I want to be more intentional about reaching out to them and keeping in touch. Cause I know when my leaders do that leaders I've had in the past, it's really wonderful. So they're in one hand, I'm like, oh, I give myself a lot of grace. I'm really bad at it. And then the other hand, I really want to get a lot better at maintaining relationships. Mm-hmm. I am always on the phone, <laughs> whether it's just talking on the phone, FaceTiming. Anyone who's ever lived with me, almost any time I walk through the door, I'm on the phone. Um, not only just because I've been in a long distance relationship the last few years. That's such a small part of it, it seems like. I have reminders in my phone to keep in touch with people and check up on them. I pretty much every day talk to someone new. I'm very close with people I grew up with. 
a lot of my family and there's kind of a solid group of people that I am extra, extra intentional with and I won't go longer than a month without talking to them, but that's even pushing it a little bit. Mm -hmm. I do think any of those friendships, there have been times where it's been a while and you just pick up where you left off, Mm -hmm, but I think I just really value knowing what's going on in people's lives and being able to not just have a phone call to catch up, but kind of go through the day-to-day struggles and the Mm day-to-day victories and not just have like a one hour, this is what's happened in my life for the last four months because Mm -hmm. we haven't spoken. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. Okay, so last question. Think of one, I mean, there are a lot of people listening who maybe are anticipating a move or maybe they're making a decision on a job or maybe they're just, they're planted where they are and they're afraid of moving to a new area. What would you say is one thing that you have really grown in or learned from uprooting and going to a new place and it could be just a a cultural experience or your eyes being open to a new part of the country or whatever or it could be just something you know in a personal growth kind of way of just a way that you've grown by having to stretch that muscle of trying new things so what would you say is a big way that you've changed and grown through making a move in each move I think I've had to grow a lot in my faith Romans 8 for we know that All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And I feel like a lot of my prayers every time I move is, okay, God, this is what you say. So help my unbelief because I'm really struggling or I have no friends yet um, or I'm just not really seeing what you're doing or why you brought me here, not this other place. So I feel like for me with each move, it's just, do I actually trust the Lord? Do I actually trust that he's the one who's brought me here and that he's the one who's going to sustain me and provide everything that I need? Very similarly to Kristen's point, I remember not long after I moved here that I remember it was on a Sunday morning. I was at a church here in town and I was worshiping and just the presence of the Lord was so strong that morning in such a beautiful way. And what was so beautiful about that particular moment is I grew up in a Christian home. We prayed regularly together as a family. And so there was a big temptation to think that the peaceful environment I grew up in was because of the family that I had. And yes, my family was wonderful. But when I moved out here, that same peace came with me. And it just hit me so deeply that it had been Jesus all along who was carrying me, whether I was in South Carolina or whether I was in Colorado. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't have known that unless I had come out here and stepped out in faith. Mm -hmm. And so that was just such a beautiful realization to realize, hey, he's going to be with me wherever I'm at in the world, and he'll never leave me nor forsake me, as Hebrews tells us. And so I would say to somebody who is feeling the pressure of the what if questions, if I go to a certain area, if you keep your eyes on the Lord, he is faithful to sustain you no matter where you're at. Yeah, definitely. I agree with that because you don't know how God is working your life in the moment. Usually it's a lot of times something you look back on and realize this move out to Colorado and living alone and going through all the struggles has prepared me so much for my future of moving to where a year ago, I remember talking to my mom and her, or I guess a year and a half ago, but she was like, I just don't know how you're going to do this in the future, like move all the time because I'm such a planned person. I like being planted. And she was like, we just need to, you know, 
see how this goes type of thing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But now everyone's so confident in me being able to do that because I think I've grown in faith so much and I've just learned a lot. And Mm -hmm. so looking back, I see all of the little seeds that God planted to prepare me for my future. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I think for me, it's probably um, one, just opening my eyes to different cultures, different areas, different experiences, different, you know, growing up in, in California in a largely Asian community and then going to the Midwest and just being with like farmers. <laughs> and I mean, it's been interesting. And then the East Coast and, you know, being out in Washington, D.C., just really fascinating. And then two, just what that means to um, strengthen that that muscle that allows you to take risk and be OK with it and risking making friends, risking trying something new, risking, oh, here I have to sign another rental contract and be, you know, and put roots down and stuff. So it, uh, yeah, there's a lot of growth, I think, that can happen. So you guys, these are such great thoughts and I think really encouraging. So thanks for weighing in on this. And hopefully those of you who are listening, um, you too can be encouraged if a move is coming up for you or it's something that you're praying about. Uh, know that, as John said, God is with you every step of the way. So thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks, thank you. Lisa. Thank you. I was in the dark. All alone, I could barely breathe This heart I'm tethered to All I've known felt so incomplete The darkness fades My soul awaits I feel the change As daylight breaks You've opened my eyes Well, hey, everyone, we are back this week with part two uh, of our culture segment. We are in a conversation with Deborah Faleda, great friend of Boundless. She's a licensed professional counselor. Uh, you know her from True Love Dates. And I want to remind you um, that we actually we're going to have links to all of this. I mean, many of you already follow True Love Dates, uh, as well as many of the other things she has going on. But know that in our show notes, we will have the links to all of those. And so uh, this week, we're actually continuing our conversation with Deborah around her new book, Reset, uh, Powerful Habits to Own Your Thoughts, Understand Your Feelings, and Change Your Life. So Deborah, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Lisa. It's good to be back. (laughs) Well, we only solved um, half of everyone's problems last (laughs) week, so we're going to continue the conversation. Yeah. And I had to get in. I did I did confess in the spirit of, you know, owning your stuff and, and being real. 
I confessed my digital, my phone, smartphone addiction last week and uh, what I have decided I need to do about it because I have determined after several years of, of trying to break a digital addiction that I was just toying with it. And so uh, now I'm actually starting to take some more extreme measures, which uh, I think I'll have to check in with everyone later this year. And, and uh, Yeah, I was le- going to say, talking about it on, on this live show is pretty extreme measures. <laughs> I know, exactly. So now I'm going to have people like text me, and if I respond within five minutes, they're going to be like, it doesn't sound like you're doing very well. <laughs> so, And I know that boundless people will, and I know that my family and friends will. So thank you all in advance for that. Um, okay, well, we're, like I said, we're talking about Reset, um, this book, which I, I like that you identify it as you're real, we're really talking around habits that are not just externals, but that almost always have underlying causes. And a lot of them can play back to patterns from earlier in our lives. And I kind of want to start there because um, one of the sections of the book, you talk about owning your thoughts and how uh, you even give the example of, you know, our brains are so determined to love routine and shortcuts. Mm -hmm. That's why we all can drive and get on the freeway without thinking about it because we're now so used to doing that. Um, Our Although it's it's kind of sad, you know, our our sad brains, um, when we talk about it, I think you describe it as saying, you know, they we just love the path of least resistance. That's just a, yeah. that's just a fact. And so um so it's very easy for us to just get lulled into this idea of being um led by our thoughts instead of us leading them. And one right. of the areas I want to want to ask you about that you talk about is is kind of like looking back at our families of origin, because I think those mm-hmm. are some ruts that we can easily get into and think that there's normalcy there when there's not. Um, right. And I was so struck by this as I was reading how, you know, you think of like, and, and this is like all of us at Boundless, you go back for a family event, maybe it's Christmas, maybe it's someone's wedding. And weirdly, we all get into these same roles that we were in when we were kids. And none of us like being in the same role and playing the same role and having the same patterns, but we all do. Can you explain a little bit of the science behind that and why? I mean, talk about things that we do that we don't want to do. Like, it seems like relationally, those roles are much harder to break. Yeah, and I think it's because many of us haven't identified them. Hmm. Um, sometimes we identify them later because they end up coming back to the surface in other relationships. But for example, let's say you're listening and you're one of those people who's like a peacemaker. You don't like conflict. You don't like confronting people about things. You, you know, if something's bothering you, you'd rather not share it. And so you kind of just end up being that person who just kind of makes everything good and makes everybody happy but maybe you walk away from the situation feeling kind of frustrated because you didn't actually say what you needed and you didn't actually explain how you felt and you're just kind of glossing things over because you don't like conflict. So you can move on in life with that mentality, with that role like the peacemaker. But here's the problem. You got to get to a point where you ask yourself, why do I carry this role? Where is this coming from? Why don't I like conflict? Like a, a little bit ago, Lisa, we talked about you and your, your phone addiction. And, and I was saying how if you take a day off, then the next question that you ask yourself is, why do I have this role in my family? Why do I feel the need to 
answer right away and have a hard time with boundaries. Because those are the narratives, the roles that begin developing in our lives, even when we're young. Um, You know, it's not the same for everybody. It's not like there's a specific age that it happens. But over time in your early development, the roles that you carry are based on the, the, the thoughts, sometimes the lives that you believe. So maybe that peacemaker grew up in a family where there was a lot of chaos and their job in the family was to kind of like obey and listen and make sure everybody was happy and content and not cause any problems and kind of make peace. And so that peacemaker mentality goes with you through life and inhibits you in some ways, inhibits you in having real authentic relationships and sharing what you need and confronting people in healthy ways. And so we carry these roles in relationships, and a lot of times they're rooted in the experiences and the patterns from our past. Yeah. Well, and that's where, I mean, it's interesting that you're saying that because I think that a lot of people, you know, again, when I've talked to friends about this, it's exactly what you said at the beginning where you said a lot of us are just, it's like frog in the kettle. We think because this was our pattern growing up, we think that that is normal and that everyone experiences that in the same way. Right. And that that maybe this is just my personality. Right. This is just who I am. Yeah, exactly. And so as a result, we don't think that that's something that we should go after. We're just going to stay again. It's so it's so much easier to keep playing that role and to keep doing that and managing the expectations around it, which is so interesting around that. Now, okay, give us a little bit because I think some people (laughs) are like, Okay, well, given that, I'm just going to have to like start some therapy or something, which probably for some people, you know, where a lot of this is deep seated, that's not a bad idea. But when it comes to like owning your thoughts, like in a scriptural way, because we know there are scriptures around this, taking every thought captive, Second yeah. Corinthians ten five. What does just going about our day, someone's like, well, Deborah, I can't pause and take every thought captive because I have to work my job and I have to go get groceries and I have to hit the gym. And <laughs> how do we how do we make this accessible to us in an average day? Well, I think the first step is to, to reframe that and tell yourself, yes, you can hmm. do it. Hmm. <laughs> you absolutely can when you're on your way to the gym and in the car and working You just have to be intentional about it. You have to be looking for it. One activity that I have you do in Reset is a 24-hour chart your thoughts activity. And not just every single thought that pops into your mind, but specifically the negative ones. You know, maybe you think, man, I'm just not good enough for this, or this is so overwhelming, or I'm just not capable of doing this the right way. I don't even know if I have the skills I need to accomplish this task. I'm just, you know, like maybe it's those thoughts, the negative thoughts that pop into your mind. Every time a negative thought pops into your mind, be aware of it and write it down. Maybe use your iPhone and and open up a note and just keep track of the things that pop into your mind that are negative about your body, about yourself, about God, about others, whatever that might be. And then start looking for patterns. Are there any patterns that come up or themes that come up about what you're thinking about in a negative way? Some of those critical, negative, worst-case scenario type thoughts. Like look for patterns and themes because those are usually really revealing about an area in your life that needs healing. And so once you get those patterns and thoughts, I think the next best step is to understand, okay, maybe I'm constantly 
um, negative about my value and worth. I feel like I'm worthless if I'm not accomplishing, if I'm not succeeding. Well, then we go straight to God's word. What does God's word say about the theme of my value and worth? And every time that negative thought pops in, let me write down a couple verses, some truth that I can replace it with. Lisa, I think oftentimes without even realizing it, our thoughts end up being rooted in our trauma instead of being rooted in God's truth. And then we live out of those traumas, whether it's big trauma or small trauma. You know, maybe it was uh, people bullying you. Maybe it was feeling like you weren't good enough. It doesn't have to be like massive trauma for it to impact what we believe. But the key is to actually stop and recognize those thoughts, to tune into them and not just let them take control. Mm -hmm. That makes me think of, um, yeah, who was it that said, uh, I, I don't have the name now, who said that we spend far too much time listening to ourselves instead of talking to ourselves? Um, I think that's such a good quote. I don't know who said it either, but it's so true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And how, and again, but there's intentionality in that to the default is we're just going to run our own script and, and believe what we hear and allow, right. you know, our, allow our thoughts to, to run amok instead of saying, no, what am I going to tell myself that I know is truth that's grounded in scripture? I think people are often way too attached to their thoughts. Like, just because you think something doesn't make it truth. Just because you think something doesn't mean you have to believe it and take ownership of that thought. I mean, you can think something and then dismiss it. You can think something and then replace it. You can think something and, like Scripture says, take it captive and align it with truth rather than just letting it own you. You should own your thoughts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, well, if thoughts weren't enough, we also have to talk about emotions. Um, so here, this is where some people will be like, okay, you know, Deborah, I was doing well with the thoughts. You know, I feel <laughs> like there's some ground I've gained there. But now you have to talk about emotions. And actually, one of the things that you pull out is for those people who are even puzzled with the question to begin with, you uh, mentioned that one of the biggest challenges we have in especially a Western culture is um, what you call emotional disconnect. Can you define that for us, like what that actually means? Yeah. You know, one of the, the most common answers I get when I ask people how they might feel about something, like what feelings did that bring up in you? A lot of times the first answer is, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. Or they'll say good feelings or bad feelings. But feelings aren't good or bad. Feelings are just feelings. Feelings are signals. They're signs, you know. It's a, we, we have a tendency to put them in these bad and good categories rather than just seeing them for what they are. But a lot of people have a hard time being in tune to their feelings because they've kind of lived so long ignoring them, suppressing them, making light of them, thinking they're silly or unhelpful or useless. But God created feelings. In each one of us, he created feelings in Jesus. He created feelings in men and women. He created feelings as a way to point us to him. And, and I think being in tune to our feelings is a really important part of the process and realizing that our feelings are usually influenced by what we're thinking. So that everything's connected here. And, and that's the, the good news is like when you start working on one area, because everything's connected, it's like a domino effect that begins to impact the other area as well. Mm -hmm. 
Well, and I think it's so good when you, you know, when you have examples around it as everyone thinks through like, yeah, how do I do that? What does that look like? Because, because again, as you said, you know, feelings are indicators, you know, they're not, like you said, they're neutral, they're indicators. Um, But at the same time, you know, it's not all the time can we, a lot of people try to control their feelings, like think, you know, I need to not put myself in a situation where this emotion might be brought up, or how do I kind of truncate that or, or cut that off before it manifests itself? And there are times, you know, when you say, you know, there are elements of like a, um, our body will respond with like a fight or flight uh, mechanism. You talk about that. And, and I feel like it's very powerful in Reset how you illustrate that with um, really a health scare that you had. Um, can you talk about really what, how you had to walk through that and how it did affect you after the fact and it became yet another um, thing for you to circle back to and realize that, whoa, there's going to have to be some work here too? Yeah, so... Back to the concept that feelings are a signal. They're Mm -hmm. signaling us and cluing us into something. But sometimes what we don't realize is that feelings can also be a false alarm. So they're signaling something, but we might be misinterpreting it. We might be taking it in the wrong way. So this often happens when we have some sort of a trauma in our life. And I can... I can speak from my own personal experience of having gone through a trauma where I almost lost my life. Mm. And years later, whenever I would feel a little bit lightheaded or whenever I would feel like maybe I had a headache or was dehydrated and I'd start to feel off, all of a sudden, the signals in my body would start to to alarm. Like the alarm would start to go off of anxiety and, and say, something is happening you're in danger. This isn't good. It's is that fight or flight mentality that kind of kicked into high gear. There's a part of your brain called the amygdala and the amygdala is responsible for storing really significant emotional memories. And so that experience from my past was almost like this trigger that was getting, was getting alarmed, was, was getting signaled, was getting triggered whenever I would go through not feeling well in my body my anxiety would peak and would tell me, oh, no, something's wrong, something's happening. So that anxiety was a signal. But it wasn't a signal that was telling me I was going to die. It was a signal that was telling me, ooh, there's something here that you need to deal with. But I was misinterpreting it. I was seeing it as some sort of an alarm Mm. and, and reacting to it. And so for many of us, we have to be aware that our trauma can impact our emotional reactions and responses. If there's ever an area in your life where you feel like you have an exaggerated emotional response to something, there's likely some sort of a false alarm there that's being triggered by something from your past. Maybe somebody comes up to you and and says something to you that really hurts your feelings. But instead of just feeling hurt and kind of processing it and moving on, it completely destroys you and ruins your day and ruins your week. I mean, that's kind of an exaggerated emotional response to that type of an interaction. And so when you see an exaggerated emotional response, I think it's important to understand that sometimes your, your feelings are false alarming and, and you've got to get to the root and figure out what is actually being triggered. What is God's spotlighting that needs to be healed or addressed or dealt with that maybe you've never faced before. 
That's so good. And even what you were saying about your own situation of like, you know, that small little physical manifestation of like dizziness or, you know, as you said, you know, just kind of maybe being dehydrated or whatever. It was, you know, immediately you're going to think it is what it is, but it could be something totally different. And so that's such a helpful way of kind of meshing the emotional check with the checking your thoughts, too, because like you said, they're so interconnected. That's a that's a great example of that. And I think, Lisa, the worst thing we can do is just ignore it, mm-hmm. you know, like, oh, there's nothing here <laughs> because it's a signal. Again, the signal might be a false alarm, but it's still revealing something that needs to be healed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so good. Um, okay, well, I do want to close out by talking briefly about self-care because you do address that in the book. And certainly, again, talking about the wrong things we tell ourselves, um, I think sometimes we can go, especially as Christians, to one of two extremes here. Either, well, I'm a Christian, I'm serving the Lord, self-care is selfish, I shouldn't get into this, Um, this is, you know, whatever, this is just for the Kardashians, Um, and so we kind of go that, or we go the opposite extreme and kind of play a martyr complex of like, I'm so worn out from all my service to the Lord, I need to just go and, you know, take a month off and do yoga 24 hours a day or whatever. And we kind of retreat and and go into our shell and pull away entirely. And so, but you actually define, I like this, how you say self-care is actually soul care. We need to approach it without a sense of shame. Um, and even Jesus modeling healthy self-care. But why is that an underlying basis for everything that, again, we're a culture that treats symptoms. We're a culture that tends to wait until a problem has surfaced before doing anything. What would you say is a good approach, especially now in a new year, for folks to say, okay, what underlying, what's a good baseline practice for me to start here? I think it's important to imagine yourself like a well, and you are living your life to serve God and to serve others, and you're bringing up water for those people and to help them drink. But the problem is, if you're never refilling the well, you're never taking the time to nurture it and care for it and fill it back up, the well will run dry, and eventually you'll have nothing left to give. And I think a lot of people hit that point before they realize, man, I am so empty. I have not done a good job caring for myself. And when we look at Jesus, he modeled soul care in such a healthy way. I mean, he stopped to rest. He took the time to eat and drink. He surrounded himself with friends. He celebrated and savored life. He set boundaries. He did things to protect himself and and to allow his physical body here on earth to be able to be used for God's glory. And I think oftentimes we kind of neglect ourselves and we get to the point where we are just feeling awful and doing awful things and, and engaging in bad habits. Um, But, you know, when you're empty, you're not actually ministering and caring for others well. So I think it's something that we have to really reframe the way that we think about it and not see it as a selfish thing. Um, But the reality is we're doing it so that we can better care for the people that God has called us to care for and the calling that he's called us to nurture. Mm Mm-hmm. 
No, that's good. Yeah. And I, I like too how, you know, you make the point in a couple different ways in the book of it doesn't mean just checking out from all of your relationships or ig- ignoring people or, you know, doing doing the things that kind of get you back into the habits that you're trying to break. Like all of a sudden, well, for me, self-care is spending beyond my means and, you know, r- charging everything on my credit cards. Well, no, you have to. That's again, where friends and community and stuff plays into this so that we can all encourage one another to get the rest and the care that we need. Yeah. And even when we talk about soul care, it's the deeper work. I'm not saying that you should never go get a mani-pedi, but at the end of the day, that's the type of self-care that only lasts for a little bit. Mm -hmm. But when we're talking about this concept, it's kind of a deeper idea of really learning to care for yourself in lasting in significant ways. Absolutely. Well, folks, again, um, this has been a, a two-day, two-week conversation with our dear friend, Deborah Faleda. We've been talking about her book, Reset, Powerful Habits to Own Your Thoughts, understand your feelings and change your life. And I do want to remind you, as we did last week, that uh, we are making Deborah's book available, which currently is a pre-order. So you're hearing about it here first um, for a gift of any amount to Boundless. So hop over to boundless.org, search for 785 this week's episode. You'll see the book cover there. Just click on it. Give a gift to Boundless for all the work that we already do. And you know, you're part of our family and you love us. And we want to send Deborah's book as a thank you to you. So you can go ahead and do that today. And Deborah, thank you so much for putting pen to paper with this and sharing your wisdom and uh, really helping us walk through some of the ways to make some of these powerful, powerful habit changes that need to start at our core. Thank you, Lisa, for what you do. And thanks for having me. I was watching and waiting for something to change. For someone to come in and save the day We're finishing out the show with our inbox, and we are answering one of your questions. And I actually get the chance to answer this week's question from one of our listeners who asks, should I accept being a bridesmaid for one of my best friends when I have seen some red flags in her relationship? I've had a couple deep conversations with her about the issues I see, which were well-received, but she ultimately decided to stay in the relationship. I feel I have done what I can do to help her without forcing her to do what I would do. 
Now they're getting married, and I don't know if I should be a bridesmaid or how I should go about being one when I don't particularly approve of their relationship and think it might harm her in the long run. Well, this is such a great question and so practical because who of us has not been in a situation like this? I can think of three situations <laughs> where I have been uh, in this exact boat, and it's a tricky spot to be in because you love your friend, you want to support her, you want to be part of her big day, but you are kind of like a little bit wistful of like, I wish this would have been different, and I kind of wanted better for her, or I wanted someone different, or whatever. So a little perspective here, because it is easy to think all those things and to want all those things, but being a bridesmaid does not mean, and really there's no situation or no role that we could play that would put us in the shoes of being able to control this situation or control your friend or this relationship. And so um, so here's the perspective on it. You have said in your question and in what you wrote to us that you've had some deep conversations with her. You said that she actually received them quite well. And then she went about, you know, making her decision. And I think that you can feel very good about that because you have done your part. You have been a good friend. You have been honest with her. You have shown care to her in that. But where I don't feel you have to cut the cord, in a sense, is in saying, well, I cannot stand up for you. I cannot be a bridesmaid in this. And kind of here's why. Because there now, unless you didn't share specifics here of, of what you talked to her about, if there is no clear-cut issue of sin or direct denial of God's law or his purposes, if this is a marriage that functionally and biblically could happen, um, if they're not unequally yoked, if this is a marriage between a man and a woman, that is something, I mean, marriage is a common grace given to man, and it's something that we can all support and we can all root for. Now, of course, we want people to have healthy marriages. We want people to be off to a great start, and you have your opinions about that. But that is something, as I said before, that you cannot control. And so if those other factors are in place, and this, in fact, um, is a marriage that you know, is is ordained by God in the sense that marriages are. And it's something that um, that your friend, you know, has put some thought into, has put some prayer into, and you know that she's moving ahead with it. What being a bridesmaid is, is it is standing up next to her and saying, I want to pray for you. I want to root for you. I want to be hopeful for you. I want God's best for you in this relationship. And then you have to relinquish that to God himself and let him take it from there. Because you don't know what God is going to do in this relationship. So for example, I mentioned being in this boat a couple times with friends of mine, and they were just kind of like these guys, you know, a couple of them had told red flags as far as whether it was financial issues or their attitude towards others or a relationship maybe with their parents or something that involved kind of some weird enmeshment or whatever. I mean, those are kind of some serious concerns. And so I voiced them. And in another situation, it was kind of a friend who was marrying a guy who had been widowed, and it was kind of soon, and I was a little concerned, like, has he really, you know, made the separation here? Has he grieved? Whatever. So again, I'm putting all my own judgments on this, but ultimately, God knows. And so I think what you do is you realize that 
you know, we got to see where God takes this. But what I can do is I can step in and say, marriage is a good thing. I love my friend. She is marrying someone who wants to marry her. And especially if they're both believers, you trust the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives and let God take it from there. And so again, don't put the burden on yourself of having to be a bridesmaid for a marriage that ultimately will only be super healthy and super successful because that is not in your power to direct or to determine or to guarantee by any means. And so what you're doing is you are saying, I am going to stand up here and I'm going to support you and I'm going to pray with you. And I am trusting that God and the Holy Spirit will grow this marriage into what he intends it to be in his good timing and with his good purposes. And so with that, I think you can feel free to be a bridesmaid and move ahead and be like, okay, because I almost feel like telling your friend no and trying to come up with reasons why this is not something you want to do is probably going to be more hurtful to her and to the relationship as a whole. So that's just my advice for this situation, having walked through this, as I said, several times. And so I hope that as you prayerfully approach it, uh, you feel good and at peace about where you go with this and that you can move forward in your friendship and uh, and love this this friend of yours and hopefully see that marriage grow and be strengthened and be honored um, as they honor God and you honor God as a friend in this. So... All right. Well, that is it, folks, for this week's show. As always, we do want to hear from you. So write to us at editor at boundless.org here in the new year when we're so excited to hear from our friends and fans and having uh, just celebrated uh, just a couple weeks ago our anniversary, the 15th anniversary of the Boundless Show. So we will see you around to that end next week. I'm Lisa Anderson for The Boundless Show. The Boundless Show is a production of Boundless.org. Focus on the family. Oh, 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 oh,